1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me welcome you, those of you that are new to West Cohasset. It's a pleasure to have you here. I met a family this morning, and we want to welcome you. My name is Joe Franzone, and I serve here as the pastor. And in the first service, I gave a little flavor because they all gave little bits and pieces of their life. I thought it would be appropriate to give little bits and pieces of my life. And so most of you will know this, but just in case you don't, um, I've been in pastoral ministry. I didn't tell you this for 18 years. It'll be 18 years this April. I've been married for 22 years, and I have two kids, Jared, who is 17, soon to be 18, and then my daughter, Lindsay, who's 14. So that's about it. <laughs> Let's hear the word of the Lord. Uh, you'll be knowing that after our time together, we have a meal waiting for us, and, and don't feel bad if you didn't bring anything. There's plenty for everyone, so we want to make sure everyone knows they're invited to come and stay and eat so we can have a fellowship with these gentlemen. And... Um, that would be, seemed like a good way to end the morning. Let's hear the word of the Lord. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was, be, what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written... Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a de demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's bow together. Let's seek the help that we so desperately need. God and Father, we, we thank you for what has taken place already and, and what we've heard and, and listened to. 
We ask now, God, that beyond the voice of a mere man, we may hear your voice. For we believe, God, that when your word is truly taught, then your voice is truly heard, and it is for your voice we only listen to. Therefore, on such a unique occasion like this is this morning, we we desperately long and need to hear from you. And then we need to believe what you tell us and then to live in light of your truth. So please, Holy Spirit, come now and do what we cannot do for ourselves. This is our great longing and our great need. We feel and know our, our great need this morning. And I know, God, that I can't do anything as I should without your help. And so we ask these things for Jesus' sake, Jesus who suffered and died in our place and rose again. Amen. William Reese in the 19th century wrote a hymn. Second verse of that hymn says, On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world and love. Well, that hymn tells us of the cross of Jesus Christ and that hymn, in essence, was the very center of what Paul was preaching to the Corinthians, but not only there. Because as you look at the whole of the New Testament, there is one continuous message that Paul is preaching. And there's one message that he's declaring again and again, no matter the fallout, And that message was a given message. It was given from Christ to Paul. And Paul was frankly a steward of that message. And that message was was the very foundation of everything he said and everything he did. And that message was the basis of every answer to every question or heresy that confronted Paul as a messenger of God. And that message was none other than the message of the cross. It was the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so it was the message of the bloody, condemned, condemned as a criminal, shame-covered, torturous, scandalous cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the heart of the message, that Christ was insulted, that Christ was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was scorned, he was lampooned, and and then hung on a tree like a piece of meat, and then eventually speared to see if he was done, and then dead. And then three days later, alive. And that message, what I just told you, that message of the cross was the apex, the high point of the plan of God to save the world. I want you to understand that. The apex of the plan of God to save the world from its own sin and transform men and women into new creations was this pitiful, weak, foolish, in the eyes of the world, death of Christ. And his death was to be the culmination of the very plan of God to save the world and to transform men and women into new creations. Now, if your Bible is open, which I hope it is, the Jews of Paul's day, verse 22a, couldn't stand this. This, to them, was a contradiction. This was insulting to them. They knew that uh, cursed by God is anyone who hangs on a tree. So the Jews would say that our Messiah, when he comes, he's going to be powerful and he's going to be dynamic and he's going to be a liberator and he's going to be replete with the capacity to fix everything here and now just the way we would like it. So then talk about a weak ending. I mean, the Jews would say our Messiah is not a naked 30-something young, young man bleeding to death on a cross. Don't tell me that. Well, that was the Jews. The Greeks of Paul's day, verse 22b, thought this message of the cross was a pathetic story of foolishness. 
This was irrational to them. This is not wise. Okay, are you telling me that God comes down as a baby through the womb of a virgin of all things and then God grows up and then God dies as a criminal in a Roman kangaroo court and then he dies on that cross and then a resurrection from the dead and that was to be the, the impetus or the strength, the energy to transform men and women into eternal members of the family of God and a justified existence forever before the face of God. That's it? That's what you're telling me? And so the Greeks would say, well, I don't think so. That is, that's not very wise. So in just one line, verse 18, again, if your Bible's open, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, that's verse 18, those of us who are being saved, it's written in the present middle participle. I have to tell you that so I can say that what Paul is trying to say is that right now, Christian, right now, those who are being saved, right now, this is happening to you, the cross is saving you right now. You're being saved by someone else right now. It's the power of God in the work of Christ at the cross. You need to understand that. It's important, isn't it? So in just one line, Paul divides the whole human race. On the one side, everybody's perishing. On the other, those who are being saved. Now, I know uh, know of a person overseas who gave a talk a while ago, and the talk was on the necessity of the sufferings of Jesus Christ for humanity's salvation. And that, that Christ was the only one and his death was the only one that could save us. And so, so during the talk, the, the, the talk apparently angered a few people that they left the talk. They stormed out out of the talk. Just couldn't stand it. I know of another occasion where uh, this was a young lady who was speaking on the future of Christianity to a great number of professional people. And she began to speak then of the ex- exclusivity of Christ and the cross and the great necessity. No one left her talk. But after she was done, you know how it goes, there was a great number of people out there waiting to give her the business, if you would, about her narrow-minded views on religion. Now, it would be one thing if it was only there, but it's not only there. Uh, Think with me. The removal of the cross as a a central in the life of the church for her justification, for her sanctification, for her message, and for her wisdom, her everything is less and less, I would suggest to you, less and less a part of the average church service in America. Oh yes, they would say, yes, you know what? We can get your family in shape, we can get your marriage in shape, we can get your business dealings in shape, and we can get your quality of life in shape, and we can get you in shape, and we can get your finances in shape, and then you'll be in great shape, such great shape, you'll be thought of as wise and noble and outstanding. Finally, you'll get it all together, and the message of the cross, well, that's really for those people who are just kind of starting out. The newbies, we'll call them. Because, you know, after a few years in this whole thing, we can't show any weakness. I mean, we have to hide every weakness. I mean, the horrible part about growing up in Jesus Christ as a seven-year-old convert is you get to know how to hide the stuff. Pretty easy. You can't stand weakness. And, of course, the problem is that that is not how the gospel is given. This, this is not how God works because you don't need to be a follower of Christ to aspire for all those things that I mentioned, nor to achieve them. Of course, they're not bad. But we're tempted to take those things and make them an idol. And we use Jesus then only as our avatar, as our guru, as our co- coach. And you give me to the good stuff, Jesus. So it's kind of like the Wheaties approach to Christianity. We, we want impressive people to teach us impressive things in order that we might ourselves be impressive. I want to know what it, you know, I want to know impression, I want to feel impressive, and I want to become impressive. Let me just give you one example. Think, think when you go to the Christian business person's meeting. You would never hear from Fillmore who works in the back stock room, would you? 
No, we want Stuart. Stuart, who apparently has it all together. He's well healed. He has his own office, and he's got it all together. That's what we need. We need Stuart, because, because who's Fillmore? I mean, he works in the back storeroom. What is he going to tell us? I mean, what would Fillmore say? That he was once lost, and then he was now found, that he was blind, and, and now you can see that he was once a wretch, and God saved him, and now he was remarkably a new creation, all because of Jesus Christ? I mean, you wouldn't really want him to say that. You wouldn't want him to set forth the gospel out of the disgraces of his own life. Oh no, we need power. We need, we need the special forces. We need the crack group to come and tell us. This, this was Corinth. They were from the high street. They were some of the best and brightest at everything. Everything that I read this week about Corinth was it was a slick city. And if you lived there, you knew you lived there and you were mean with it. You know what I mean? I said in the first service you would have a t-shirt, to, you know, Corinthians, everybody else second. You know, we need some really wise person, Greeks. We, we need some power. We need some real power, Jews. Paul has already established the fact that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And as you think about the life of Paul, in the the life of Paul, through the hand of God, God kept him weak. Circumstances, the trend of circumstances, situations, because of the gospel, God kept him weak. And so he says to them, verse 26, again, from your Bibles, brothers, think think about what you were when you were called. And, and then he says to them, because he has to say to this, because it's true, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many, didn't say any, but many. Not many were influential. Not many uh, were of noble birth. But God chose, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and things that are not to nullify things that are. God, why did you do that? Verse 29, so that no one, no one may boast before him. And loved ones, it is not that they were regarded by society as foolish and weak. No, it's that they are. Verse 27, they were foolish and weak. And that's what Paul is saying. And if you're going to be honest and you think about the Bible and you think about history, is this not God's established pattern? I mean, it runs through the whole of the Bible and you could say through the whole of history. God chooses mostly the most inadequate, weak people to do his bidding. Again, God chooses the most inadequate, the most weak people to do his bidding. Verse 27a, the foolish. Verse 27b, the weak. Verse 28a, lowly. Verse 28b, the despised. Verse 30, it's all because of God. It's all because of God that these people are Christians in Christ at all. I mean, not to be unkind, but can you imagine if you were in the group when the, the first time that letter was being read? I mean, that part would have to be pretty depressing, you know? Who are you calling foolish, <laughs> right? I mean, you'd have to say, lowly, despised. I mean, you would say, okay, Paul, it might be true, but you didn't have to write it down for all of time. You know, not everybody's going to know that we were weak and foolish and despised. I think it's like our mother's coming to the front of the church to tell everyone that she thought it was so cute that we still wet the bed at 14 years of age. You'd be like, mom, please don't tell anybody that. Not that that's true. And it isn't over there. I remember the first service, somebody was laughing. I stopped that at 13. No, I was kidding. <laughs> So it's not by accident, is it? This is God's design. This is God's elective love. God who's wiser than man. This is electing love. Three times Paul says, God chose, God chose, God chose. Verse 30, it's because of God, him, that you are in Christ Jesus. So the Christians in Corinth 
was assembled not because of any kind of clever methods. And, and you could even say they weren't assembled even at the root because they, they were ready for God. No, it was God's design. God was behind it all. He chose the Corinthians and God in his electing love turns the standards of the world upside down. I mean, think with me just for a moment. You're starting a church in the high streets of 1 Corinthians and you really want that group that would describe there in 26, verse 26, do you want that to be the bulk of your people? Well, God does. F.F. Bruce. God annuls all conventional canons of wisdom, power, reputation, and the value of this world so that no one may boast before him. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul would have to remind them, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you act like you didn't receive it, Christian? Loved ones, surely of all the pride there is, surely the worst pride is spiritual pride. Because everything that we have has been given to us on the basis of God's kindness, on the basis of God's grace, on His benevolence, and His goodwill. And Paul takes that same thing and he applies it to himself in 1 Corinthians 3. We we're not going to read it, but basically what Paul says is, what is Paul? Paul, Paul isn't anything. I mean, you write an authoritative letter, try to get them to get on the boat, the right boat. Did I say that right? The boat? Okay, there you go. And you're telling them, thank you, that you're nothing. This is who I am. I'm absolutely nothing. Some water, get it. Some plant, get it. But only God makes things go and grow. And by the way, I'm nothing and God's everything. And so once we come to that sensibly, then when we told, verse 30, of all the good things we have in Christ, well, how did we get there? Because of the death of Christ and his mighty resurrection. And so he tells them, okay, this is who you are in Jesus. In Jesus, righteousness and holiness and redemption and wisdom. That God, that God has taken the, 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 the individual that possessed none of those things and, and just put those things into them so that it would be apparent to the believers and it would be apparent to the church and it would be apparent to the world that, that God is the one behind it all so that no one may boast before God. Well, John Flavel, Puritan writer, writes this. It's a little dry in the beginning, but listen carefully, and the second part is, is a bit better, but it's, it's all very good and helpful. These four illustrious benefits, righteousness of Christ, the holiness of Christ, the redemption of Christ, and the wisdom of Christ, the power of God via the message of the cross, the cross itself, these four illustrious benefits are conveyed from Christ to us in three different ways and methods. First, his righteousness is made ours by imputation. Second, Christ's wisdom and sanctification by his renovation. And finally, his redemption by our glorification. That redemption is the absolute and complete deliverance from all the sad remains, effects, and consequences of sin upon the soul. Therefore, verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He goes on. All our excellencies, all the good things about us, are borrowed excellencies. We have no reason, therefore, to be proud of any of them. What intolerable insolence and vanity would, be, would it be for a man that wears the rich and costly robe of Christ's righteousness, in which there is not one thread of his own spinning, but all made by free grace and not by free will, to jet up proudly up and down the world in it, as if himself had made it, and he were beholden to none for it. O oh, man, thine excellencies... Whatever they are, are borrowed from Christ. They obligate thee to him, but he can be no more obliged to thee who wearest them than the sun is obliged to him that borrows its light or the fountain to him that draws its water for its use and benefit. 
Well then, let the sense of your own emptiness by nature humble and obligate you more to Christ. You see, that is what Paul was trying to do to this church that was so high-minded about itself. So when we think honestly about our own emptiness and our own inadequacies and our own incompetence, whatever they may be, what we need to do is we gather them all together and we take them to Christ again and again, Christ alone, so that on our best day or our worst day, our only boast is Christ. That's the message of the cross, that that God's power to save came through the crucifixion of a 30-year-old man. And our time is done. Think with me. Which message is going to offend the people of our day? Message number one, well, you're, you're almost there. And with a little bit of help, we can get you there. We have a terrific plan for you and yours. And, and you're almost there, so we can get you there. Or, you're a sinner. You've offended a holy God. You're in a perilous position. There's only one answer. You must say yes to the cross. You must say yes to Jesus. And that happens. You'll be justified before a holy God. And God will keep justifying you before him for all eternity. Only because of the cross. Only because of Christ. So that you'll be dependent or codependent, if you would, in the best sense of that word. On that cross and God's mercy and Christ's power who, by the way, is alive and is king forever. That's the message of the cross. That is the message who Christians glory in. And in order, and this is wonderful, isn't it, that we would never relate to God on the basis of our personal performance or even our personal circumstances, but only relate to God on the performance of Jesus Christ at Calvary. So which message will offend? I think we know. But which message will save? Final quote from John Stott, a word and we're done. To preach salvation by good works is to flatter people and so avoid opposition. To preach salvation by grace is to offend people and so invite opposition. This may seem to some to pose the alternative too starkly, but I don't think so. All Christian preachers have to face this issue. Either we preach that human beings are rebels against God under his just judgment and have left to themselves lost and that Christ crucified who bore their sin and curse is the only available savior or we emphasize human potential and human ability and here's the key with Christ brought in only to boost them and with no necessity for the cross except to exhibit God's love and so inspire us to greater endeavor. The former is the way to be faithful. The latter, the way to be popular. It's not possible to be faithful and popular simultaneously. So what does Paul say? We have a foolish message according to the world. And most of us who have been saved out of the world, most of us would admit that we're foolish people. And the preachers, we didn't even read or talk about chapter 2 verses 1 to 5. Most preachers, if they're going to be honest, they're afraid. We tremble when we say this. We don't, we probably have a problem, to be honest with you. Foolish message, foolish people, fearful preachers. And that is God's usual method. That is God's usual method to save the world. Why? So that no one may boast before Him. Think it out. 
Thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together. Father, we would ask that you would take these truths, send them home into our lives. Whatever is useful, help us to keep it. Whatever is not, then help us to remove it for Jesus' sake. Amen.